This is the Epic New Podcast. Two idiots and a list. Where you're going to get two idiots and a list. And now, coming to you live from Circle Avenue Studios, your hosts, Nick Pizzolo and Kirik McMillan. Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of Two Idiots and a List. This is a podcast where two old friends get together and run down the top five things they like about a specific topic, along with a few things they don't. This week, we're talking about the band Rush. Rush is a trio out of Toronto, Canada. You can call them nerd rock. You can call them whatever you want to call them. They've been called lots of things. I am here today with my co-host, Nick Fasolo. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm super thrilled to be here today uh, because uh, this, this band I know is really, really important to, uh, to uh, my counterpart over there. And um, we're going to have a lot of fun with Rush. I, I think I might surprise, uh, surprise the young man. I look forward to this. Rush has been a, a, a topic of, uh, well, let's call it sword fighting between the two of us over the years. <laughs> Not sure why, but uh, but it has. Uh, so we're going to dig deep on that. We're going to dig deep on why it is such a, you know, th- th- and it's not just between us two. It's it's like it's that one band. I guess it's like that one band. I, I guess you could put the Eagles in there, too. It's like you either like them or you fucking hate them. Or, I, mean, I, so? I don't know. I think if you either love, I don't know. We're, we're gonna get into it. We're, you gotta have to. You're gonna have to work me out here. Uh, work out with me because uh, I, I just don't know what I feel about this band quite as yet. Well, you know, I. You, it's funny you mentioned the Eagles because I find the Eagles much more um, sort of uh, available to the masses. Rush is a very unique musical group, right? The the product that they have is just a different. Uh, a different, a different product. The, the the style of the music, certainly the style of the vocals. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, complaints about the band. But to me, it's the irregular and shifting time signatures are a big component of who these guys are and what they bring to the table, along with some of the best musicianship around. And uh, I, I am happy to uh, to debate the, the warrants of that statement, <laughs> as I'm sure we will. Loaded for bear. <laughs> so Rush was, Rush was formed in Toronto in 1968 uh, by the guitarist Alex Lifeson, uh, then was joined later by the bass player Getty Lee and the drummer Neil Peart finally joined in 1974. Uh, they, uh, they, their U.S. break came when a Cleveland DJ used one of their seven-minute songs off their first album as a regular part of their playlist, which is interesting yeah. because not many women like Rush. I've seen, I've seen these guys, oh, I think it's eight or nine times, which is the, the most band, uh, most re-seen band for me. I've never seen any other band that many times. And... It's it's a bunch of dudes, and and it's a bunch of dudes who could be like wearing pocket protectors and and whatnot. It's 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 a unique crowd for sure. Could be. <laughs> it's, it's like you get one with your ticket. You do. You do. Well, that it, that's kind says, of like 
Yeah, that's kind of like where I was going. Well, I mean, so the, the, the previous band that we did was Def Leppard and the crowd at Def Leppard is almost like almost a direct opposite of what you would get at a Rush concert. Um, it's a bunch of like hot chicks. Set. Yeah, it's like it's a lot of hot chicks and a lot of dudes that probably look like chicks, too, if you're going back in 87. But like, yeah, Rush is I, I, I've never been to a show. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't watch them play in my backyard if they were playing. I, I just I don't get it. That, I think that's the whole thing. I don't. I mean, yeah, they're they're a good band. I just don't get the just the powerful allegiance that Rush fans have for this band. It's like I don't get. I think is it an underdog story? Like these three nerdy guys should not be as popular as they are, and and we're there. You know, we champion them. Is it that? You know what? Is it that's the a great fucking nerds' revenge. <laughs> it's a great question. They you know they they came out themselves and said you either like us or you hate us. It's, it's one or the other. There's not a lot of gray area. Um, the New York times said Getty Lee's voice sounds like a munchkin giving a sermon. And that kind of sums it up rather well, right? It, it's shrill. He is not, uh, an astonishing vocalist. He's got a pretty impressive vocal range, but what hitting that range at the expense of sounding like a strangled cat is one of the downsides of rush for sure. Uh, I don't know what the I don't know what the, the the massive allegiance is to them. I know for me, so I got I got pulled into this band by uh, an older cousin of mine who you've met, and when I was in grade school and and, and you know I'd go to his house for holidays as he came to ours, and we you know, I'd go up into his room and hang out with him, and and he's three years older than I was, so I you know if I was in late grade school, he would have been in late middle school. And he was always, yeah, he always had a bunch of cool stuff in his room. And he had these giant wall hangings, if you remember those. Uh, you know, they were just silk cheap silk screens of, of band album covers and stuff like that. And he had a, a huge one, at least it seemed huge to me at the time, uh, for their album 2112, which has... <laughs> Has the star man, as he's come to known by you know fans of the band, or some in, in dude's a, ass, in a certain pose, and it does have a you know a star on it. So he got into he he listened to these guys religiously, and yeah, I would ask him you know like what's you know what is this all about? I I see I see this giant wall hanging like what is this? And he started playing it, and I thought wow this is really kind of weird. Like, I, I don't know that, that this is fantastic. It's just odd. Rush is a little bit like scotch. Um, you know, even the hardiest Glaswegian doesn't emerge from the womb. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can tell out, you've you been know. listening to Rush for the last week. I <laughs> lassie. <laughs> how about the, how about a wee dram of the, of the smoky stuff? No, yeah, they don't, you know, scotch to anybody on their first taste is, acerbic at best i mean it's a it's a stringent flavor it's gasoline um, yeah and and once you drink enough of of that <laughs> sweet sweet gasoline it starts tasting pretty good well rush I... is rush is kind of the same way and it just depends you know some people drink scotch they could drink a, a trailer truck full of it and they'll still not like it all right um, fair enough fair enough but was that the only thing they were what else were you listening to at the time like you got into rush 
Um, Probably the same bullshit that everybody else listened to in grade school. I don't know. Uh, All right. Electric so you were... Avenue. <laughs> what, I love it. What else, what else did you listen to it. in grade school? No, I get you. I, I just, there is, um, so th- there's few, I would, I would say, there's a lot of, there, there's fewer people that get into Rush at an early age. Like, to capture Rush as a 6th, 7th, and 8th grader, I just don't, I don't know if I, I know anybody quite like that. Well, you do now. Yeah, no, no, I just, like, but why? Like, so, like, like I said, I through the fandom. It could have been more because I always thought my older cousin was kind of cool. He, he, you know, he, he was raised in a little different house than I was and, and got away with different things. And I think uh, there, there was probably some admiration there from a younger, younger to older basis. And so I applied myself and <laughs> learned to like the band. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But but it stuck. It wasn't like, you know, he 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 put it. You know, he, he, he brought this thing out. Under, yeah, it, putting it, it under your, your pillow at night. I yeah, get it. You know, I get so. it. Hey, that's why I got into Def Leppard, right? I told that story last, you know, the last time around. It's like the older dude across the across the street who was, I thought was the coolest cat was like listening to it. I'm like, all right, I'm in. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's start digging in. We, uh, as the... As our format uh, indicates, we we are going to look at our top five things relative I'm try to, to try to build this list here. But I do want to to kind of like, well, here let's do it now. Uh, the fan base. We we touched a little bit on the fan base, and I think the reason why I for me Rush is, and I think you're going to see like Rush is they're they're not a bad. I don't think they're a bad band. But their fan base really, I think, is just a little too prickly for me. Like, I've seen my share of Rush documentaries, and it's, you're right. They're nerdy, like, like office guys that are cubicle dwellers that kind of, like, here's, and here's why there's no females. You can't dance to Rush songs. You cannot. Period. You can't dance to it. You can't thrash to it. It's like, you can't even bang your head to it, like. Not even Tom Sawyer or Limelight or one of their hard rocking tunes. It's like you, 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 only thing that you can do is either play air guitar or play air drums. And air drums is the saddest looking thing that a human being can do. <laughs> it right? Is. And you'll see a lot of it at a Rush show because you are listening to one of the world's greatest drummers. Okay, we'll, let's table that for a second because I think that's a longer discussion that we have to have. But I will give you this. They're, they're exceptional musicians. And, and I think that's why they're, so, they're, they're very band nerdy kind of guys. They're really, really good. They're all good at writing songs. They're all good and they, they can perform their instruments. They're really good in concert, I bet. Right. Rockers, don't. Yep. They, they can barely even write their own music. They can barely, you know, stand erect on the stage while they power through their chords. But these guys are true musicians. And the fact that they chose, you know, progressive rock to like kind of do display their artistic abilities is kind of unique. And, you know, they I'm not sure you could get away with with what they do and, ex- and sort of exploring those talents in a, a pop format. Uh, it just, I think it would be a weird, a weird matchup. Yeah. yeah. Well, that pop is not that definitively, you know, but when you try to do it like hard Rocky, you get like tool or helmet. And, you know, I think we, you know, we're not doing a podcast on helmet. No. Although I did have one of their albums that I rather liked in small doses. You couldn't do a lot of it. Right. Couldn't do a lot of it. All right. 
Um, I think last time we started with my honorable mention. So let's go to, if you have one. If you don't have one, that's fine. If you have an honorable mention, I I got an honorable mention. I do. I do. And uh, I don't, so... I was not aware of this until uh, recently. I think it was in the summertime, whatever, I was going through my catalogs and I'm like, oh shit, I never knew they did that. Uh, they did a cover of Summertime Blues. And it's really good. Like, it's just a different take. Like, I'm a fool for, like, that old, you know, timey rock and roll type of stuff. Like, right, right before, kind of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones hit. When it was an American rock and roll kind of thing, when they're talking about, you know, teenagers and cars. It's like, I'm a sucker for the Beach Boys and stuff like that. And, and the Summertime Blues is like a song that I really like. And they did a cover of it, and they did a damn good job of it, I have to say. They also did a cover of For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. So I will I will make some comments later about their their covers as well, but I, I'm going to reserve that for later on in the podcast. But that was, uh, yeah, that was my honorable mention there, Summertime Blues. I, I like to see the boys get out there and out of their comfort zone a little. Okay. So my honorable mention, and I have a feeling you're probably not going to know a lot of these because they have, what, 19 studio albums? Uh, 19 albums is a lot of music to pick from. It's and a I hard, really, hard-working band. It's a hard-working band. And I really, if you look at my focus on those albums, uh, the, there's actually a couple of songs off the first album that's, uh, that, that's, that are pretty good, and they didn't even have Neil Peart then. Um, and then they did uh, a handful uh, more, and a lot of those were sort of, the, the early albums were much more rock-oriented. And then by about the, well, maybe the third album. So the first two albums are more rock-oriented. By the third album, they start to get in a little bit more progressive, and then they do a few more, and then they get into the keyboard era, which is, uh, it is what it is. There are There are pluses and minuses from that. And then they eventually when they get back to like presto which came out in uh, i think the 90s that that sort of they, they got back to a rock more of a rock nature a little less on the keys then it makes sense right through the 80s they were key based through the 80s everybody was key based so uh, let me i mean before you get to that, i, I want to extend about on that a little bit this fucking band from 1974 i've got albums studio albums not their live shit Studio albums from 74, 75, 75, 76, 77, 78, 80, 81, 82, 84, 85, 87, 89, 80, yeah, 89, and 91. And that's a lot of goddamn music for them, for all studio albums. And they toured in and, each album, I think. Yeah, they, they probably, I would, I would assume so. I would imagine, I, yeah. And they've got a run of some pretty damn good albums going from, I would say, Permanent Waves to Moving Pictures to Signals. Uh, to even Grace Under Fire, whatever the fuck that was. But... Pressure. They're, Grace Under Pressure, whatever. <laughs> they're one of three bands that has the most consecutive gold and platinum albums. That's right. That it's is right. High. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and fucking Rush. I think Aerosmith was up there too. Come on. Um, but yeah, on. I mean, it's it's impressive. And I, I think one of the the... Just a side note, one of the things that I love the most about the fact that we're talking about this was I forced you to think and listen to Rush for an extended period of time. 
And yeah. that is my gift to you, sir. Yeah. That is my gift to you. Payback's a bitch. <laughs> All right. My honorable mention is off of the album Fly By Night. It has a really um, sort of classic guitar opening once it starts playing. Fans of, of Rush uh, who know many of their albums will probably know this song. The song is called Fly By Night. Quick editor's note, the song I was referencing wasn't Fly By Night. It was off the album Fly By Night. The song is actually in the end. Run on one more time! And it's a song about coming home after being on the road. And I don't know that there's anything specific that, that I make that an honorable mention other than as I looked through the songs that they've put on these 19 albums. It was one that, that I always remember when I heard that guitar sequence. It just it just stuck with me. That is my honorable mention. All right. Fair enough. All right. Hey, listen, I want to play a little game with you. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you what the song's inspiration was. And you tell me what the song's title is. Ooh. All right. See what you can do. All right. Some of these are easy. Some of them not so much. Okay. Well, first of all, um, what's the first song written by the three of them together? The first song written by the three of them together. Well, the first album was out. It would have to be on the second album. Uh, Fly By Night? It was. It was Fly By Night. Okay. All right. Next song. Next song. This song was inspired by an E.M. Forster poem. And the poem is about a dreamlike journey in search of pot fields. (laughs) <laughs> by a poem in search of pot fields mm-hmm. um are we talking early well it's probably early to mid-career i'm guessing this wouldn't have been off their later albums i don't know that they were really into i don't know if they were ever really into pot they were always into that sort of fantasy uh fantasy science fiction neil peart who wrote all the lyrics was big into those kinds of things so oh yeah he was oh yeah in in a big big way i i i'm drawing a blank i don't know passage to bangkok ah well that does make sense thailand you know if you're gonna gonna find some some weed in the in the 70s i'm guessing thailand was probably a pretty good source (laughs) all right this one should be a little bit easier all right um inspired by a toronto radio station cfny Neil Peart saw a, um, a the banner of this this uh, radio station on a bus, and he knew that this radio station also played a lot of Rush tunes. Is it the spirit of the radio? It is the spirit of the radio, and I guess that's the other complaint I have about Rush is that their fucking lyrics, while they're great, I mean they're very original, but the workload that you have to go through to sing with that <laughs> fucking takes- song. It takes some work, indeed. And a lot of this stuff, if you if you look at the if you look at like the things that inspired Peart, uh, and I don't know what what Peart's educational level is. I, I don't know. I, I heard at one point that he had like a uh, like a, a PhD in in creative writing, but I think that was just a, a fan. That sounds who, mythical you know, to me. Yeah, having his own fantasy. Here's what I heard. I heard that that. Um, Peart especially read like five newspapers a day and his lyrics would come from the headlines of the day that he was reading. I mean, anybody who's that big of a reader, of course, has a huge vocabulary. And this, this guy packed a lot of fucking big words into those songs. Like I, listen, I enjoy the words, but man, it is, 
it is a chore to sing along with that fucking song. <laughs> you got to get your thesaurus out to, to sing with Rush. Well, and, he, like, you know, and not everything has like a like an incredible meaning. The, what I what I saw on the writing of the song Trees off of uh, I think that's off of Moving Pictures. That that song is it's not really about anything like it i thought i would find you know this was some statement against communism or 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 socialism or capitalism or something that the, you know there was going to be this big driving factor and it was nothing he said yeah. he saw a cartoon with trees that were acting goofy like a, i don't know if it was a cartoon or like a like a like a printed printed paper kind of comic strip but he saw that and was inspired by these trees acting goofy. And so he saw trees fighting and said, what if trees were people? And then wrote a song about it. And it's a great song. I mean, it's, it, it's very poetic. I just, I thought that I would like walk away with this sort of um, moment, yeah, right. you know, and I didn't. Uh, well, I, I still have an um moment when I listen to it, but, but that's just <laughs> the, the beauty you get off of it. <laughs> all right all right next one Coming next to song. Number... i got two more i got two. Oh, more. you got two more i'm sorry yeah, please go ahead the fuck it's a rush <laughs> all right what is the uh oh so this song was inspired by this is the airport code for toronto y y z flew into there uh, wait, wait, wait a, a second wait a, a second. trip not y y z it's the airport uh, code for toronto no, I know, but the name of the song is YYZ. Oh, my apologies. They are Canadian and, and therefore influenced by the Brits. fucking believe that a Rush fan would have mispronounced <laughs> the song of one of their great, I don't know, drum solo songs? Uh, All right. Probably their second, no, their first. I think that's their first instrumental song. No. Oh, well. It's neither here right. nor there. It's an instrument. Last last song, not to bring the room down. This song is about Nazi concentration camps. Nazi concentration camps. Boy, who doesn't like to sing about about that? Like I said, I, I they can't really dance to it. Why we don't have more songs to it? Yes, and, at the sock hop. For full disclosure: This is coming from the fucking internet. So some asshole who's you know just taking a break from smoking pot and watching Dark Crystal probably put up with this fucking thing. <laughs> Red Sector A. I've never heard of the song before. I've heard of it, but yeah, it's. I uh, think it's off of Twenty One Twelve. That popped out. But, for me. all right, I, I'm confused with Rush, Rush songs after listening to them for the last few days. So there's a lot of them, and I went through the whole fucking list. Oh my god, yeah. What all do right, you got so for number five? Number five, I have. Um, I think this is off of Signals. I have no idea. I, the only album I really know really well is Moving Pictures, like everybody else does. Right. Um, and I think uh, this this song comes off of uh, Signals, and it's uh, Subdivisions. Outstanding song. I'm the a big cool, fan. yeah. The coolest part about this song is the opening, like bass synth that just kind of like sets the tone for it. And as soon as you hear it, you're like, "Oh shit, we're gonna hear something here." And it is a, you know, it. it I, the reason why I like it is because we are creatures of the suburbs. We've grown up in the city, you know, the suburbs of Chicago all of our lives. And this song is like, like, Peart got it. He nailed it. He's like, y'all fuckers sit in your own houses and your own little electric cocoons. And you're like, you're kind of like, 
you know, it, it was just a, um, it, he was like damning, you know, like your existence. Not at half a damning, but half, you know, get the fuck out there and do something. You know. So, so this was uh, this was actually my number uh, four. I am also a big fan of this song, and the the you know the overt theme of this song is if you just read the lyrics straight up, the, the overt theme is is teen peer pressure in a mundane suburbia. Right? It's uh, any yeah. escape might help to soothe the unattractive truth. The suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of youth. It's a it's it's a very poetic. Peart was a really great poet. You know, he also talks about conforming or being cast out. As a teenager, I always associated with peer pressure, but Peart has come out and said, you know, it's not just a theme for adolescents, it's it's for adults, too. And one of the lines in the song says, some will sell their dreams for small desires or lose the race to rats. And I think what he's saying is, you know, you can get in your car and drive to your office every day or get on the train or, or do whatever, you know, work from home as we all are now. And, and get stuck in this sort of rut, this this box of life that, that you know you can get trapped in. I believe the uh, the great modern philosopher Bodhisattva uh, said it best, and almost kind of paraphrasing Peart um, when he said, you know, inching along in their metal coffins on the freeway, we show these people that the human spirit is still alive. <laughs> Now, if you don't, if you want to talk about Point Break being, let's. It was uh, Amy. Amy on. and the kids just watched that earlier today, so your timing is uncanny. Uh, Peart called this an autobiographical song. He grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, and um, uh, this is their first song that is keyboard based. So there is actually no bass guitar in this song. When when a band plays together, the rhythm section is. Uh, for a good band, the rhythm section is in lock sync. They, they, the the bass player and the drummer really don't take much in the way of cues from anybody else, except each other, and some vocal cues and maybe some guitar cues depending on on how the song is playing. But once that gets underway, they are in their own world, and and they don't care what the guitar does because the guitar is going to do whatever he wants to do. They're they're free flowing. Whereas rhythm is just, you're just pounding it out, pounding out that rhythm and making sure that you guys are on the same page. So when when they, when they Alex and Getty, who write all the music and Neil writes all the lyrics, when Alex and Getty wrote this song and they brought in the keyboards, it switched it so that now Alex, the guitarist, and Neil, the drummer, are in lock sync. And they this the first time they've ever done this. And so they, they both talk about it fondly as a means of them being able to connect in a way that they had never connected before. So I, my memory of this song, the reason that I really like it as well is when we were in middle school, we had a, uh, a, an assembly of some sort. And I think the assembly was on peer pressure and it was like a giant video screen in the gym at Churchville junior high. And the whole school was in there and they, they, started the the movie and one of the th- one of the songs that came up was subdivisions and i swear i was well 
I'm sure there was others in there, but I, I was in the vast minority of people who already knew what the song was. And uh, that was a, a memory for me on this song. Obviously, I remember it, I don't know, how 40-something years later, 35 years later. So, all right, so that was, uh, that was your number five. That was also my number four. I, uh, it was probably the hip new band teacher trying to get with the kids. Hey, you know what? Put this song into the, uh, into the presentation today. The kids will really love it. Cause the, cause the me- and there maybe some of them will come out for band and play my crappy instruments like the oboe. Who the fuck wants to play the oboe? If you don't live in New Orleans, the oboe has no fucking relevance. Is the oboe strong in New Orleans? I would have thought the clarinet was strong in New Orleans. Isn't that more of a They're the same fa- Aren't they the same family? Isn't it the same family? It's a woodwind, right? Uh, they're very different. Very different sounds. Get the fuck out of here. Very different sounds. All right, my number f- my number five is off... Proving my point, Gary. <laughs> my number five is off of their, their third album, Caress of Steel. Uh, this is a song called Lakeside Park. Lakeside Park is a song written, obviously, by Peart in terms of the lyrics. Peart grew up on a lake in the Toronto area, and of course, there was a park near this lake, so it was called Lakeside Park, which they have now named, I think, a pavilion after him after he died recently. Uh, There's really nothing specific or special about this song. In fact, Geddy Lee, the, the lead singer, hates it. He called it a lousy song. He dislikes it so much, they played it live for the first time after the 1970s when it came out. They played it live in 2015. So he's got a real bone to pick with it, apparently. And I think he doesn't like his lyrics but or his vocals, but I, I, don't, I don't know why he would dislike that song over, over any others. To me, it's a combination of the rhythm and the instrumental and the, and the lyrics that it brings me to some happy place. I'm not sure why it does that. It's, it feels like Peart's writing about something happy, and so it makes me happy to hear it. So that is my number five. All right. Never heard it. I figured as much. Um, you will eventually. <laughs> I'm sure I will. All right, what do you got for number four? All right, let's move along here. Um, I have uh, number four. I, believe, I think this is off of Moving Pictures. I'm pretty sure if memory serves me correctly. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about uh, a, a kid going to his uncle's farm and unearthing a, a barn find of an old red barchetta. And I really like this song. It's a, uh, it's a, I dig it. I always digged it. Uh, or I always dug it. it. It's a great, like, again, uh, his lyrics, like, paint a picture. There's a huge, there's a huge story behind this. And it, almost like every time that you listen to the, to this song in particular, it's like, you didn't catch something. You didn't catch the, the, the you catch something. You didn't catch the, the time before. And you're like, oh shit, that's another part of the story. More, more part of the visualizations. Like you can actually, like, you know, you're, you're almost with this kid every step of the way through his uh, through his journey, and uh, you know he's just got some cool lyrics. Again, I literally like his lyrics. It's just like a workload. This is another one of those songs. It's like you can belt this out in your car all along, but you really can't sing it together. Like as a you know, it's not an anthem. You can't harmonize like to it. it. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I do like it. Though. It's a, it's, a, it's a good solid song. So I don't know if you if you happen to to see what they had what the history is on this song but but it's based on a short story that was posted in an issue of car and driver magazine 
and essentially the the concept of this article which I think came out in like the late 60s or early 70s the the concept of the of the story was cars are getting safer and safer and safer and as they do the cars that are not as safe have to come off the road. And so he sings about a car in a barn and he talks about committing his weekly crime. And his crime is that he's driving a vehicle that's that doesn't have the same safety features in place. But and I think the the short story said something about, you know, the, the cars are newer cars that are safer are a lot slower. So he's got this nice fast car, but it's not as safe. I'm with you. It's a it's a really unique piece of writing along with some yeah. some pretty good musical some pretty good music work around it too. Yeah, like I was, it, it it's a good example of how how intricate Peart's lyrics are. I mean, when you're stripping away the old debris to hide a shining car, you got to find some way musically to make fucking sense of those fucking lyrics. And Getty Lee does a really good job of like making his bass climb those notes and playing along with like, you know, his next sentence or whatever it is. Like, and that song is a perfect, because I don't know what the fuck Lifeson is doing during that song, besides just a, a harmonizing chord part in the middle. <laughs> Um, but Lee is doing a lot of the work there, not only trying to get those fucking lyrics straight in his head, but also to make the bass bridge the gaps. I mean, that, that's that's a hard fucking thing to do, which is why like hard rocks, hard rock tunes in their lyrics are pretty simplistic because it's you know it's more about the show of like these five guys who look good on stage rather than you know trying to hide the fact that you're three band nerds on a stage. And before. and while while I understand the barb that you threw it at them for this uh <laughs> you you bring up an excellent point a lot of the bands that are out there that that were these hard rock bands have a minimum of four players i think the foo fighters now have six because they threw in a fucking keyboard player which i don't understand why foo fighters right. needed a keyboard player but these guys did what they did with three dudes and there was never a fourth ever that as far as far as the times that i've seen them or anything I could find, they really had, they they had a real core sort of goal of we are going to make and be responsible for all of our own sounds, not only our music, but anything else, to the point at which, so Getty Lee is uh, very arguably one of the best bass players who's ever played the instrument. Not only, if you just took the bass alone, uh, his abilities there are astonishing. Throw in the fact that he also played keyboards with his feet. So he had like church organ pedals. He had a pad like that built where they were literally church organ pedals and he would play those. Now, granted, I, they were whole notes, but I don't, I don't want to hear that detail. I just want to hear, <laughs> I just want to let Getty Lee play the bass and he played the keyboard with his feet. With his feet. Because that, that, that image of him like his toes. back on his ass. <laughs> Play the bass like a like a dead bug. <laughs> That's the image I'm going to be left with. I'm 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 glad to hear that. So you know, and and then he and then he sang on top of it. Now I've played I've played bass for ten plus years, and that's not a very long time. But I have played live fifty plus times, maybe sixty or more. I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but. For me, like if I get into a song and I start like really moving, I lose the beat. And if if I'm going to do backing vocals, which I sometimes do, it has to be the simplest 
set of repeating notes, like straight quarter notes or straight sixteenths notes, where I don't have to do anything syncopated. Because if I do that, it's like walking and chewing gum. This guy not only this guy was not only you know playing the bass, and and if you listen to the lines he's playing while he's singing. This isn't simple quarter notes. This guy is, he's in some cases popping or slapping. It's often syncopated. It's moving around the neck. And then you throw in the fact that he's playing keys with his feet. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, these guys are really talented musicians. Anytime the timekeepers are also singing, like that's got to be a really tough, like I see like, you know, drummers like Phil Collins or Don Henley, like those guys that sing and drum at the same time or the guys that play bass sure. and, and sing at the same time. Uh, that's, you know, that, that the, no one is, I, I'm not arguing at least that these guys, these guys are fantastic musicians. Yeah. That's the reason why police, the, the bass lines to the police songs are so simple because Sting was their bass player. So if you listen right. to early, you know, police songs, not his solo stuff where he's got somebody else playing bass, but that's why they're so simple. Uh, okay. You took my number four you've already you just did right. your number four right i did you yeah, did your right. number four so why don't we break here for a second and go into a segment that for the time being at least we're going to call masturbatory fantasies this is a great great segment i love you it. you may wonder why why we would call something masturbatory fantasies uh we do have a mutual friend named uh, and this has nothing. This has nothing really to do with him or his fantasies. But so, we're so Kirk and I, we uh, our wives and I, we we, uh, we we go to we go to Vegas every year, and uh, you know, and, and usually we do a walkabout during the day to dry out. We're going walking through the MGM Grand and coming down the the main escalator to get into the uh, to, to, to the main casino. And so it's daytime, and so there's a lot of like families around, like walking around, seeing all the sights and everything, like like you would ever bring a fucking kid to Las Vegas. Um, but we were just kind of minding our own business, and when we talk, we talk, you know, you know, in volume. And I don't even know what the conversation was, but this guy was walking right next to Kieran, and. I said something to Kirk and Kirk said, he's like, yeah, it was probably in one of masturbatory fantasies. The guy stopped dead in his tracks. And if he wasn't with his wife and his daughter, he would have mauled Kirk right there in the middle of the fucking lobby. He was so stricken now I, with the use of man. And I didn't see this, right? So we're, we're walking and I've, I've turned to Nick and Nick's turned to me and we're walking and talking and I've, I've, I've got nothing but Nick's eyes in my in my eyes. That's all I'm looking at. That's all I'm concentrating on. This is often the case. I swoon at his, his baby blues. Uh, the uh, so we're walking along, and and I drop this line about masturbatory fantasies, and I you know, I can't remember what the hell I was referencing either. But for some reason, that that felt like the right the right thing to say at that time. And this guy's there with his wife and his and his teenage daughter. And, uh, yeah. and, and so I say it and I'm looking at, at Nick and the guy is either behind me or he's, you know, Nick's on my left and the guy's on my right. So I don't see it. And we walk past him. Nick drops to a knee in the middle of the MGM grand, of it was like an atrium or maybe a lobby or something. I don't think we were in the actual casino at that point, but he drops to a knee laughing because he cannot stand up. And uh, this guy caught full <laughs> volume in like you were, he could have shouted it in his ears and he knows that his teenage girl heard what you said. <laughs> he, you were going to get a fucking beer bottle to the back of the head. I, 
it was awesome. Uh, all right, so the segment called Masturbatory Fantasies is if you could see this band touring any album, what would that album be, and what would the two bands be that you would see them with? Nick? Ah, uh, shit, man. It's got to be a really good show. I just don't know if I could... Because I was looking through, like, Russia's set, you know, like, their song list, and I'm like, I, I honestly, I, I maybe knew maybe about 10 or 12 songs. And I'm like, all right, well, that's that's not going to do. It's got to be a really good opening band. So if I could see Rush, um, I would see them touring their Moving Pictures album because you get enough of, uh, was it Permanent Waves before them or Power Windows or some shit like that. There's enough there where I could could stomach it and then you know to keep in with the prog rock thing i would think i would i would probably start her off with a little yes um because this i'll just draw a straight line from from yes uh to and and yes on the big generator tour for sure (laughs) for sure because that is a delicious album t to b top to bottom uh, so the, the, yeah, but you're going to get the old tunes that kind of inspired Rush to be who Rush was. Um, so rest, and then the direct line that the, the capper, the, the people who would close the show, um, I would see, uh, the, uh, the muse tour, the simulation theory, um, was outer limits. That was such a great show. And the, you can draw a direct line from Rush to Muse. I agree. Like, I agree. They're away. kind of a modern version of here. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say, uh, Rush on their permanent waves tour. I did love moving pictures as well. Uh, it got kind of killed for me over the years. There was just a lot of radio play and, you know, kind of over and over again. So I would pick their permanent waves tour. I'm going to hold this up. So Nick and I, uh, due to pandemic reasons and safety, uh, are not currently doing this together. I'm going to hold this up to the zoom so that he can see, uh, where'd it go? Where's the camera? Back it up, asshole. Oh, I see. I, it's at the same stuff. Big generator oh yeah the rush yeah fuck yeah big generator you know it yes big generator i i said the same thing this is the this is the tie-in that we want with this band to go from those who because with big generator you're going to get all of oua12 as well right it's not just going to be yeah there's good stuff on both of those uh and then i have elo yes elo on on any of their albums i i'm a jeff lynn fan i think he's good it's not oua12 my friend oh i'm sorry um it's nine zero one two five. I'm gonna say. <laughs> I, right? I don't remember. You know, because nine zero one two zero is Beverly Hills. Yeah, nine zero one two five. Nine zero one two five sounds. Good. Then, All right, that's another fucked up. Go ahead. We're gonna do yes later. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure we will. And and Van Halen. All right, let's go on to our number three. What's your number three? Uh, let me see where I got here. What's that? Right Oh yeah, okay. So this is this really specific one. Um, my number three is uh, is Big Money. But it's the it's the version off the Show of Hands album. Yeah, that's a uh, that terrific live album. One of yeah, my favorites. Dropped in '89. Yeah, and and to be honest with you, I pretty much I mean I knew Rush existed from '80. So whenever I saw Tom Sawyer, uh, you know, or for whenever I, I heard Tom Sawyer, I said saw, toss saw Tom Sawyer because they did have a video for it. Like Rush's videos are all like you could tell that these guys are not about. The, I think they kind of like they got they got it. Like nobody's here to see us. You want to see us play our instruments, so basically every fucking video you're going to get is just us in the studio playing the song. Fine, fair enough. Yeah. I was well aware of Rush um, and their their hits, but uh, it came back around in 1989 when we had 
uh, such a bitchin' summer that summer. We were 17, I think we were just about to go into our senior year of high school, and we had a fucking, yeah. we were at parties all the time, and this album was playing a lot during that summertime. I have no idea why. Like, again, it's not a party album. It's not. But it, you know, it was it was a terrific live album. Uh, the their, yeah. their showmanship came through on that album, and it rocks. And and big money. The best part of that song is when it's like there's an interlude and then it stops, and then Lifeson's guitar comes back up. Carries the rest of the sh- uh, rest of the song the rest of the way. That is a really cool part of this. I always that that is the only thing that you can jam out to with <laughs> a Rush song. I like the song as well. All right, my number three. Uh, this is off of Moving Pictures, and it is a song that Neil Peart wrote about his discomfort with success and public attention. Uh, Moving Pictures by that point was like their I think it was their eighth album, and they they had gotten pretty well known. He really, Peart did not like the the limelight, so he wrote a song called Limelight. And um, it's uh, it's just got a, a, a phenomenal rhythm, a phenomenal beat. Again, Peart's writing really shines through I have no heart to lie. I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. It's just a really unique look at at what someone goes through when their life gets transformed like that. And I, I if I, I don't look at celebrities and say, boy, I wish I was them. I mean, sure, it would be great to look like Brad Pitt and, and to have a, you know, an endless bank account. But I, I also like to, when we finally can, go to restaurants and bars and shopping and not have to get mauled. And, and I think that that's, you know, Peart probably could walk through your average mall and nobody would really know who he was. I mean, it's, they just, they didn't have that kind of following. I think he was so private that he didn't like anybody coming up to him at any point in time. You know, this He wrote a song about it. The irony of a Rush guy uh, <laughs> talking about his fame and fortune, you're right. He could probably walk down the streets of Chicago and nobody would, mm-hmm. would notice who he was. But uh, maybe that's a comment on his own fan base. Like, I don't want people who would recognize me to come up to me and talk to me because I creep. I, I get creeped out. I get creeped out by my own fans. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, Peart had Peart had some tragedy in his life. Cornelius Elwood yeah. Peart. As his, Peart, sorry. It is Peart. Uh, Cornelius Elwood Peart. Did, did they all fucking change their names? Because Getty Lee was Gary and Alex Lifeson changed his last name? <laughs> I don't know. What the fuck is going I on? I don't know. So he, well, and Cornelius, I think Neil is just short for Cornelius. Yeah, you know, he wasn't the first drummer from the band. Uh, there was there was a guy that they hired first. Uh, John Rutsey uh, recorded their the the first album uh, that Rush did. He just croaked recently, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, he had issues with diabetes. And uh, a lot of things said that there was also maybe some musical differences. He died at 55, I think, in the last five or maybe 10 years. So uh, Neil, they picked up Neil after that, and Neil uh, was involved with all the writing you know, since then. Now, I can't find more than one reference to this, but I'm going to chalk it up as internet detritus. He left a band called Hush to join Rush. Oh my God! <laughs> Jesus. 
these fucking guys. Uh, it's, so it, I, I it, will, listen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna forgive him all that because he this mother, he he could he could name some fucking tunes, man. Like there's not too many bands out there like that have they can really name a song. Like he's got like distant early warning. That's cool. And uh, Caress of Steel. The, my favorite, I think, is Test for Echo. And I don't know why. <laughs> but it's a cool song. But it's so it's so jive-assy that it kind of wraps itself around and becomes cool. I do like it. Uh, so his uh, in 97, his 19-year-old daughter was killed in a, what yeah. was described as a single vehicle car accident. So I don't know what that means. You, you know, car ran off the road and hit a tree or, uh, or hit some ice yeah. or, or what. I, I have no idea. But his, his only daughter with his common-law wife, 19-year-old daughter, was killed. And 10 months later, his wife died of cancer. That's a one-two yeah. punch that few people few people get. He went on to do a 55,000-mile motorcycle ride on a hiatus. He took like a two- or three-year hiatus from, from the band. And what year was that? That was in the late... Early middle mid nineties or late nineties. Ninety seven is when his daughter died, so his wife died in ninety, probably ninety eight, because it was August of ninety seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. and that was that was the same time that so when he was on his hiatus and Rush didn't know if they were going to get back together, Getty Lee hung out in Seattle and he hung out with all of those bands that were you know at the you know at the height of their powers, right? Pearl Jam and and Soundgarden and all those guys, and he he remarked, he's like. Being from Canada, being from where we were at, and being kind of the band that we were, we're like we're kind of like the nerdy rock band that just kind of got lucky. And and he's like, I had no fucking idea that all the guys in Seattle were like, come play on our song, man, come play it. Like we idolize you guys, and it was like a good shot in the arm for that. And I'm I'm glad that they got like that part of it, like like professional recognition from like you know superstars of their own right to say like no dude you guys are fucking rock legends and we are an honor to be you know with you so that's i thought that was kind of a cool kind of story it's a shitty way to have it play out yeah right uh i think the foo fighters were there uh were the ones who brought him into the hall of fame and probably and they played live like they they covered I, I don't know if they play i don't remember what it was it might have been yyz but and that could be due in some part to the fact that uh, uh, Taylor Hawkins is one of the few people on the planet that can play at a level anywhere near Neil Peart. Yeah, sure. All right, uh, let's go on to our next round here. Are we at round two already? I mean, I think I'm down to number two. Yeah. All right. Oh, uh, just by, uh, as, a, as an aside, Limelight was now in number one. Oh, it was? Yeah, it, uh, Limelight is, you know, it's, just, it's a rare, great rock tune that, like, has some easily singable lyrics but the lyrics are deep as fuck too i like them like they're really like it's but i'm i'm i dig lifeson's uh guitars on that the really crunchy kind of um you know almost he's dissecting power chords but like he does a really good job with it's it. his favorite solo to play live so i've been playing guitar for a long long time i've always looked at his solos and i'm like i jump off after about the fucking second measure i'm like i don't know what he's doing he's uh, he's 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 <laughs> fucking funky shit yeah, he's a really talented dude. That song and that solo has been identified as uniquely... That, that's sort of his ID tag, his dog tag, is that song. Yeah. Uh, it has his his fingerprints all over it and, and how he plays it and the, and the whammy that he uses. 
uses. And- yeah. So again, like Limelight was not on my radar when I was a kid at all. Like I think, you know, like Tom Sawyer, that was about as much rush as I got in my life. Um, but it was around the time of, you know, 86, 87, like when you and I started to get to know each other a little bit more through high school. Um, and I, it's actually, I think it was upstairs in your bedroom. You had this uh, journal entry of, you know, I, I, I folded, I thumbed through it because there are no fucking boundaries between me and Carrie. Like, I just, oh, a journal? I'll fucking read your journal. And you were probably out of the room, not knowing what I was up to. And I'm like, and there's all these lyrics, you know, from different songs that are just. That's know, all that's in there, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the only journal I ever kept. Yeah, that was, was just a recording of lyrics that meant yeah, something yeah, yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it like, you know, I'm secretly. Today I kissed a girl. Never. No, it wasn't anything like that. <laughs> No, no, no. Um, and I'm like looking at it, I'm like, oh shit, look at that. And I think the first page was all the world's indeed a stage and we're merely players. Um, and I, I'm like, wow, that's that's heavy, man. And I, I read like, uh, I think you had a Peart, but it was Rush. Like I didn't realize who Neil Peart was at the time, uh, but I saw Rush. I'm like, oh shit, I know them. And I, I think I might have asked you, I'm like, what, what song is this from? And you said Limelight. And I think I, I hunted that down. And I'm like, okay, this is all right. I like that. And uh yeah, so that's that's kind of how like that introduction to um, that, and that was also the summer. So this is how like we got deep into Rush because that was the summer that fucking Alanuski was the delivery driver <laughs> for the medical uh, for the fucking uh, the medical supply. A company. van with no seats in the back had had a driver's nothing. seat and maybe a passenger's seat, and then nothing but like gas cylinders, like the big ones. That, yeah, that if yeah. they fall on you, will 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 shatter your femur kind of gas cylinders and he so would drive around would... <laughs> oh and no, he had he, he had a he had a recline like a like a like a like a your grandfather's recliner back there yeah fucking lazy boy in the back seat <laughs> that was not bolted down so every time he would take a turn or fucking jump over the train tracks like this shit would go airborne and you'd be banging all over the place and man and it, that motherfucker was crazy, and he would always have moving pictures completely cranked. That feels about right. And while, yeah, while he was driving, he was playing the air drums. So <laughs> never were his hands on the wheel. He was a unique cat, and I don't, I still don't know how we ended up hanging out with him. But uh, I, I have no idea. Yeah, whatever. Um, all right. It's so that was your number one. I guess that means I've got to come with my number two here. Uh, my number two. You're probably not going to know, though I think I have referenced it before. My number two is an all-instrumental song off of Hemispheres called La Villa Strangiato. And I fell in love with this song, I think, shortly after I heard it. There is nothing, in my opinion, that displays the musical skills of these guys more than this song. It It is a song that bounces from time signature to syncopated uh, run to just it, it just it's a unique song when lee talked about it at, at one point he said this is a song where our ideas exceeded our ability to play them i guess it took them as long to record this song as it took them to record their entire second album because they had so many challenges with this song getty lee also said it's an it's an indulgence created for a fan base that wanted us to be that way. So it is. It's an indulgent song. It's it is nothing but this cornucopia, a horn o plenty of of musical abilities. The the one thing that I found about this that I didn't know 
this La Villa Strangiato is translated the strange village, and apparently they called it that because Alex Lifeson would come in and tell the band all of his weird dreams and details, so they, they named the song The Strange Village after his weirdness. Anyhow, there are portions of this song taken from a song written in, 30, in 1937 by a big band big band composer named Raymond Scott, and that song is called Powerhouse. And they copied a section from that song... about this I said now why you know why would these guys copy a song because it's a pretty direct copy why would these guys copy a song from a from a, like a 1937 scratchy big band recording because they're fucking rushed they're <laughs> fucking they got to do something different because everybody else is doing the same shit you know while the Rolling Stones are ripping off Howlin' Wolf and and the Beatles are ripping off we're gonna rip off some fucking tin scratchy fucking musical from 1937 that's what Rush fans love. It, it turns out they didn't steal it, or they didn't get the idea from this 1937 recording. They got it from well, you're gonna you're gonna recognize it. They got it from a Looney Tunes cartoon. you hear it you go of course i know that song i know i know what that's from well they I, they apparently got in a little bit of trouble on it i couldn't find any specifics around what was paid but apparently compensation traded hands to the raymond scott family for their borrowing of this of this song and and ah, one one account i read indicated awesome. that they did that proactively they didn't get sued whether or not that's true i don't know Nonetheless. Oh, the, well, they're, they're Canadian. They're just really nice there. That's right. They, the Canadians are nice, right? They, they could very well have been doing it out of the kindness of their own heart. You can't really dislike, you know, the, the band. They're, they seem like a bunch of decent dudes. Um, but uh, let me ask you a question. The uh, La Via Strangiato, when did you decide that that was your favorite tune? Has that been something that's been you've been carrying for a long time? Oh, yeah. Since, like, when? Like, Probably shortly after I heard it, or within a few times of me hearing it. So like 12? Probably. Let me ask you another follow-up on that one. How does a 12-year-old American male living in the suburbs of Chicago decide that a nine-and-a-half-minute musical version of whatever the fuck it was, like, that's your jam? (laughs) You, you, How the fuck does you that can happen? Just imagine the amount of ladies I had hanging off each arm in, in middle school and high school. I, I was very, very I, sought after. Quite the prize. How? I mean, how does all of pop culture miss you? Just completely miss you, and you land on La Via Strangiato, which, I mean, you know, again, like, what's going on in that that head of yours? I, it's, it's a busy place, man. It's just an onion. You gotta, you just gotta peel away the layers and and just Jesus be careful. Christ. You might un, you might uncover something you don't want. Oh man! All right, all right. Uh, 
All right. Rock and roll. So, here we go. on to, uh, are we on number I two or are we number, on number one? We are on yeah. number one. Well, you just did your number two. No, you just did your number two. I just did my number two. I haven't done two. my number two. Oh, do your number right. two then. So, I've only got my number two left. Um, because limelight was not my number. Uh, that's right. And so my number, t- my number two is well, off of fly. Hold on, let me let me stop you there. Then let's do All our right. second segment, just in case your number two is my number one. Our next segment here is who is the MVP for this band, and who is the boat anchor. Uh, that that's a strong term. The clinger. Who's the most important component? Who is the least important component? Is probably the nicer way to put it. And I'm sure over the course of future podcasts, we'll come up with something a little more marketable here in terms of a title. Listen, you got only three guys, right? I mean, I don't even know who their producer was, and I don't know if they produce their own shit or not. I don't, and I, frankly, do I care? No, they, their producer was only three guys. Wasn't as well known as they are. So I got to figure, like the guy that that drives the lyrics, he's definitely not the guy that brings them down. But he's, I don't think he's like Peart is not the guy who um, is the MVP. I think the MVP is Getty Lee, um, because of like Peart would come to them with lyrics and like here are the new lyrics, guys, and. Him and Lifeson would look at each other like, oh, fuck, man. How are we going to make this shit work? And Getty Lee does it. Um, he does it through his bass lines and also through, uh, you, know, you know, playing his keyboard with his feet. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I would say Getty Lee. I, I picture like cartoonishly long toes going out <laughs> oh, to, to, yeah. <laughs> to play yeah. all the individual keys, black and yeah. white. Uh, I, You know what? I am in agreement. I you, So you can argue... All day long about Neil Peart and his capabilities, and there are uh, tremendous his drumming was dime a dozen. Uh, tremendous schools of thought out there, or, or at least schools of fish, let's say that are that would argue that Neil Peart is the greatest drummer ever. No, I I happen to be one of them because I don't know that I've and I've heard uh, I've heard Taylor Hawkins, I've heard uh, Dave Grohl, I've heard some of the other greats out there. I don't know that I can find another drummer that has his ability to mix jazz with fusion, with straight up rock, with a syncopation, with multiple uh, implements. I'll send a police album your way. Stuart, Stuart, Stuart Copeland, Copeland does 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 all of that and more. Like he was like Pierre could do that, but a lot of drummers could do what he did, and he was quick. That was what he was. He was just quick. Okay. I don't think that like people make this. Oh, he was the greatest ever. No, he wasn't. He was one of the greats. He was okay um, in in the current company of like Copeland and Taylor and Roger Taylor from Queen. Like they they all could like they're all really good. I don't think you but can I hold don't a think candle. That that. I don't think they can hold a candle to to Neil Peart, the guy from. Queen. I think that's an insane thing to say. What are you talking <laughs> about? Like all they do is like play drums really fast, and I understand syncopation and the change of time signatures, but they can all do that. They can all do that. But they did. I think they all are. They're all three hundred years. Well, no, they weren't in fucking Rush. No. Rush, you needed something to fill the space with, and and Peart filled the space with his rototoms and all of his other bullshit. So, but so did Alex Van like Halen. Those... I mean, let's not let's not dish oh, wait, the rototom. Like, like Alex Van Halen is on the bench <laughs> for this conversation. Alex Van Halen is Donkey Kong. <laughs> Truly. But I think that like if you listen to Stuart Cope a little bit, you you you'll kind of like temper your 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 love for you know Perry. I don't know. He's I, fine. I don't think He's you fine. can I don't He's think you can ever. pluck anybody and stick him in that seat in that dynamic. Now I'd argue Stuart Copeland 
all right, he's already in a trio. He's got that ability to to work in the dynamic that a trio creates, which is different from a quintet or a quartet or yeah. uh, you know another type of band. But you know the so you had you had Getty Lee and you had Neil writing uh, or Getty Lee and Alex writing the music and Neil bringing the drums into it. That's Definitely a unique, part of their signature sound. It is a signature sound, indeed. The 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 anchor, uh, as it were, the one that didn't like it. That's tough because Neil Peart is kind of like like we we had said he's the backbone of like that rhythm section. So that only leaves Alex out, and I think Lifeson is a hell of a guitarist. I like him, so I'll put them both at the fucking bottom of the lake. <laughs> yeah, I like I like Lifeson a lot. I think Lifeson's uh, Lifeson to me. If you were going to rank them one, two, three in terms of the three members of the band in most important to least, I got to put Lee at number one. Lee's, Lee's talents as a multi, you know, multifaceted talent, the ability to do these things that he's doing all at once. Uh, it's just so rare. It's so unique. His, his voice. Yes. It's shrill. Uh, it, it's, it becomes a bit of an acquired taste Limburger cheese smells like an asshole, but people still like Limburger cheese. It's quite a comparison. I'm sure he'd be happy with that. <laughs> I'll be sure to Listen, I, I, sure to tweet him this episode. Like Getty Lee has the perfect voice for that band. When you get sick and tired of hearing Getty Lee's voice, you're done listening to Rush. Like there's only seven songs to listen to, and that's about all you can stomach out of him. <laughs> all right. See, I the difference here is I don't I don't bite on this bait that I could see you're, 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 you've got the carrot on the string. It's you're, you're the dude from the, the state farm commercial with the dollar. Come on. It's a dollar. Uh, all right. So our, it sounds like we are in the same boat. Uh, Getty Lee is the MVP of this band. All right. Going on to your number two and my number yeah. one. So the, my number two is I'm, I'm reaching all the way back. I reach all the way back and how I ever gotten to this fucking album. I have no idea. All I can tell you is that when I had, with my senior year, when I had moved away from all my mates and I was in a new school, I had nothing to do when I came home from school. So what I would do is I would come home and in my five CD disc changer, there was Permanent Waves and there was Journey's Greatest Hits and there was uh, another Rush album, Fly By Night. Why two Rush albums when I'm not a big fan? I have no idea. But it was there. Whose were they? Were they yours? It's got to be my... No, got to be my brothers. And I took a lot of shit from Cebu too. He, he was a big Rush fan. So the, the song, the second song, my number two is from Fly By Night and it is In The End. I'm a big fan of this song. I love arpeggiated guitars, um, especially like it starts out with that really kind of like mellow kind of vocal and his arpeggiated guitar, and then they kind of go silent, and Lifeson comes in with huge guitars, um, basically with the same chords, but it sounds so much different. It's a really, it's a really rocking tune. And, and this was before they kind kind of went like super prog. Um, you know, Fly By Night was you know like a rock album. 
like any other rock album, which is probably why they, they had this mass departure. Like, we, we're just going to break out and do our own fucking thing, um, which I will give them credit for. I mean, like, they didn't have to be rushed. They could have probably had a pretty nice career as just being any other rock band of the 70s. But, like, you know, you can only you can point to a couple bands that went, like, total departure from, you know, whatever the Stones and the Beatles kind of and Blood Zeppelin set up for everybody. Rush is one of those bands. Primus? I would argue. Uh, well, I'm saying in the 70s, like, a stepping out of the shadow of the Stones, Zeppelin, and Beatles, you know, everybody else copied them. There were only a couple of bands that kind of stepped out and made a way. Yes, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, I think the Eagles did, and, you know, a little later on, the Clash did. Rush was one of those bands, for sure. It stuck out like a sore thumb. So I, I dig that song. In the end was, uh, as, as I said, for my honorable mention... That that guitar, the way it cuts, the way it it the way it moves, just a, it just draws you in, and that was in their in their early rock phase. Um, it's the song about coming home after being on the road. It kind of makes you feel like you're at home. All right, very good. That was your number two, correct? And yeah, my list is over. I already clipped your number one. Okay, my number one. Uh, this is off of Permanent Waves. This is a song that is written about the, the way radio is changing from freeform radio, uh, where the DJ could play what, what they wanted to play, to commercial radio, where everything is chosen by you know a program director or something like that. And the song is called The Spirit of the Radio. There is something about this song, the the opening, the opening guitar lick as it comes in. Uh, it just starts out with this sort of edgy, uh, very a very distorted guitar on a on a riff that bounces back and forth, and then the drums and the bass kick in. I just the the, the song always spoke to me. Uh, I thought that the lyrics were were fantastic, and even though by the time it got to me. Radio had already long since become commercial, and, and I, we, we didn't have we didn't grow up with the ability to listen to a DJ playing whatever the heck they wanted to play. XRT was probably or, or college radio if you listen to Elmer's College Radio. XRT was probably about the freest, and I have a feeling those guys were just as as directed by their program people as anybody else. But his, you know, the way he wrote it. Uh, you know, one likes to believe in the freedom of music, but glittering prizes and endless compromises shattered the illusion of integrity. I just, uh, there's something really poetic about his, about the way he writes this. When we were in um, high school, my my senior year, uh, his name was uh, English teacher. His name was. Uh, we had to do a project for him where we either sang a song live in front of the class. Or we oh, couldn't record it. And I picked uh, Spirit of the Radio as the underlying 
underlying song, and then I wrote the lyrics over it, and I, I kind of lampooned him. I called him Cheech because he looked like Cheech Marin. Uh, <laughs> he never really complained about it. I don't think he really liked me all that much, but that's okay. So uh, I, I still have the video. One of these days I'll show it to you if I think of it. It's it's a young me in, in, um, in high school doing a video to Spirit of the Radio. So Spirit of the Radio is my number one. All right, that pretty much wraps it up for Rush. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the podcast. Uh, stay tuned. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you think you're going to get away with not naming your most hated Oh, song? oh, oh, oh. Uh, my bad. My yeah. bad. I oh, missed shit. a part of the format. We're going to have to go into a oh, second boy. hour for this one. All right. <laughs> well, go ahead. You, you. No. My, my, the most hated song, I was going through this, like, I don't really care all that much about Rush to hate their songs, but um, there is one song out there that I just it it drives drives a a, a nail. I bet I can. Head. And it, I, you I never I hear it. Predict it. It's not roll the bones if that's what you're thinking, oh. but it's somewhere around there. It's the show don't mm. tell. Off of Presto. I mean, please, please <laughs> give me a break with that. You know what that could have been? That that was a that was a that was a song that Genesis probably kicked <laughs> off their last invisible show touch me, album. Show me, like Nick, that's exactly don't tell what me, that song. Show said. me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Get out of here with that shit. Would you write a song like, ah, it's so cringy. <laughs> well, all right. So when I look at the most hated, this is a band that's got 19 studio albums. It's, you're, you're going to have some there. chaff with the weed for sure, right? You can't write that much music over that long a time and not end up with some clunkers. And they, they certainly have theirs. As I've, scrolled through it i could find you know a few dozen that i thought boy these are really irritating me um but not enough that i could really point at one and go this is this is the smoking gun i'll I'll say this my most hated is an entire album and the album is called feedback and we talked about this a little bit earlier you brought this up a little bit earlier this is an album of all covers. And I look at Rush and I go, you guys are so unique in your sound. You're so unique in what you do and, and how you do it. That for you to take something and and put your spin on something somebody else has done, it to me, it just doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's songs by the Yardbirds and the Who and Cream and Buffalo Springfield. Uh, it, it just doesn't work for me i i hear i hear stuff that just doesn't i i i don't like it i listened to uh bits and pieces of it and was just done with it almost instantly i couldn't i couldn't do it so that is that is my most hated is an you should, entire album you should and that's perfect you should put a disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast and just just Fucking fast forward to the hour and 20 mark of this, this podcast, and you will get exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about Rush fans. How, like, listen to the way you described, like, oh, it's such a disappointment to see these guys, you know, do, do material that's not theirs. Like, get no, the fuck out of here. They're good. all, I mean, it's, it doesn't sound good. You, you cannot put, it's like, you know, why waste your, 
why waste your time with like legendary songs? Like, get you the can't, fuck out of here. You like, can't like, put like, Getty Lee's voice get... on a Cream song. And frankly, I don't love The Who, but The Seeker is my favorite song by The Who. And I heard them do it and I went, wow, you guys sound like a, like a shitty high school garage band doing this. It just, it doesn't work. It doesn't translate. I would, I would, I would hate it, but probably for different, re- different reasons. But yeah, right. Right. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. Right. Appreciate it. Uh, just in case you're wondering, we are going to have uh, some other shows coming up here. We're probably going to bring on some guests. We're going to try to not focus on on bands that are really only pertinent to 48 year old suburban white males. Uh, we will branch out into some broader broader bands. We're going to bring in some folks that uh, uh, will will bring in their thoughts on it as well. So uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. Please check out other ones, and we'll talk to you soon. Check you later. Yeah.